Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 18 Who Played on the Piano Captain Dobbin Bought? Our surprise story now finds itself for a moment among very famous events and hanging onto the skirts of history. When the eagles of Napoleon Bonaparte, the Corsican upstart, were flying from Provence to the towers of Notre Dame, I wonder whether the imperial birds had any eye for a little corner of Bloomsbury, London, which you might have thought so quiet that even the whirring of those mighty wings would pass unobserved there. Napoleon has landed at Cannes. Such news might create a panic at Vienna and cause Russia to drop his cards and take Prussia into a corner. But how was this news to affect a young lady in Russell Square, who, if she walked even a short distance to buy a ribbon, was followed by Samuel with an enormous cane, who was always cared for and watched over by so many guardian angels? Yet the great roaring war tempest was coming to sweep her family down. Her father's fortune was swept away with that fatal news. All his speculations had gone wrong. Ventures had failed. Merchants had gone broke. Funds had risen when he had calculated they would fall. If success is rare and slow, everybody knows how quick and easy ruin is. Old Sedley had kept silent. Everything seemed to go on as usual in the quiet, opulent house, the good-natured mistress pursuing quite unsuspiciously her bustling idleness, the daughter absorbed still in one selfish, tender thought, and quite regardless of all the world besides, when the final crash came. One night, Mrs. Sedley was writing cards for a party. The Osbornes had given one, and she must not be behindhand. John Sedley, who had come home very late from the city, sat silent while his wife was prattling to him. Emmy had gone up to her room, ailing and low-spirited. "'She's not happy,' said the mother. "'George Osborne neglects her. I've no patience with the airs of those people. George has been twice in town without coming here. Edward Dale saw him at the opera. Edward—' who would marry her, I'm sure, and so would Captain Dobbin, I think. Only I hate all army men. Such a dandy George has become. We must show some folks that we're as good as they. We must have a party, Mr. S. Shall I say Tuesday fortnight? Why don't you speak, John? Good God. John, what has happened? John Sedley sprang up out of his chair. "'seized her in his arms and said, "'We're ruined, Mary. "'It's best that you should know all, and at once.' "'As he spoke, he trembled in every limb. "'He thought the news would have overpowered his wife, "'but it was he that was the most moved. 
When he sank back into his seat, she held his trembling hand and kissed it. She called him her dear John, her kind old man. She poured out a hundred words of incoherent love and tenderness. Her faithful voice and caresses caused this sad heart delight and anguish and cheered his overburdened soul. Only once in the course of the long night as they sat together, and poor Sedley told the story of his losses, the treason of some of his oldest friends, the kindness of others. Only once did the faithful wife give way to emotion. Oh, my God, my God, it will break Emmy's heart, she said. The father had forgotten the poor girl. She was lying awake and unhappy overhead. In the midst of friends, she was alone. Our gentle Amelia had no confidant. She could not tell her old mother her doubts and cares. The would-be sisters seemed strange to her, and she had misgivings and fears which she dared not acknowledge to herself, though she was always secretly brooding over them. Her heart tried to persist in asserting that George Osborne was worthy and faithful, though she knew otherwise. How many suspicions of selfishness and indifference had she obstinately overcome? To whom could the poor girl tell these daily struggles? Her hero himself only half understood her. She did not dare to admit that the man she loved was her inferior, or to feel that she had given her heart away too soon. She was too modest, too trustful, too weak, too much woman to recall it. Thus imprisoned and tortured was this gentle little heart when in March 1815 Napoleon landed in France and Louis XVIII fled and all Europe was in alarm and the funds fell and old John Sedley was ruined. His bankruptcy was made formal. The house and furniture of Russell Square were seized and sold up and he and his family were thrust away, as we have seen. The servants were discharged. They were sorry to leave good places, but they did not break their hearts. Old Samuel determined on setting up a public house. Honest old Mrs. Blenkinsop, indeed, would have stayed without wages, having amassed a considerable sum in their service, and she accompanied the fallen people into their new and humble place of refuge, where she tended them and grumbled against them. Of all Sedley's opponents in his debates with his creditors, which now aged him more in six weeks than the fifteen years before, the most obstinate opponent was John Osborne, his old friend and neighbor, John Osborne, whom he had set up in life, who was under a hundred obligations to him, and whose son was to marry Amelia. But when one man has been under obligations to another with whom he quarrels, he becomes a much severer enemy than a mere stranger would be. To account for your own ingratitude in such a case, you are bound to prove the other party's crime. It is not that you are selfish, brutal, and angry. No, 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 no. It is that your partner has made you so by the basest treachery. Then Osborne had the intolerable sense of former benefits to irritate him. Finally, 
he had to break off the match between Sedley's daughter and his son, and as it had gone very far indeed, and as the poor girl's happiness and perhaps character were compromised, it was necessary to show the strongest reasons for the rupture, and for John Osborne to prove John Sedley to be a very bad character indeed. At the meetings of creditors, then, he showed a savageness and scorn towards Sedley which almost broke the other man's heart. He forbade George to meet Amelia, vilifying the poor girl as the most artful of vixens. When the great crash came, a brutal letter from John Osborne told her in a few curt lines that all engagements between the families were at an end. Amelia took the news very palely and calmly. It was only the confirmation of her previous dark fears. It was the sentence for her crime of loving too violently against reason. She seemed scarcely more unhappy now, when convinced all hope was over than before, when she felt but dared not confess that it was gone. So, she changed from the large house to the small one without remark, remained in her little room and pined silently, and died away, day by day. Whenever old John Sedley thought of the affair between George and Amelia, it was with bitterness almost as great as Mr. Osborne's. He cursed Osborne and his family as heartless and wicked. No power on earth, he swore would induce him to marry his daughter to the son of such a villain, and he ordered Emmy to banish George from her mind, and to return all the presents and letters which he had ever had from him. She tried to obey, but when she drew out the letters and read them over, as if she did not know them by heart already, she could not part with them. She placed them back in her bosom again as you have seen a woman nurse a child that is dead. How she used to blush when those letters came. How she used to trip away so that she might read unseen. If they were short or selfish, what excuses she found for the writer. It was over these few worthless papers that she brooded. These relics of dead affection were all that were left her in the world. To death she looked with inexpressible longing. Then she thought, I shall always be able to follow him. I am not praising her conduct or setting her up as a model to imitate. A strong-minded girl knows how to regulate her feelings better than this poor little creature, and would never pledge her heart away for nothing but a brittle promise. Be cautious, young ladies. Be wary how you engage. Be shy of loving frankly. Never tell all you feel, or, better still, feel very little. See the consequences of being too confiding, and mistrust yourselves and everybody. That is the way to get on in Vanity Fair. If Amelia could have heard the comments about her which were made in the circle which they had left, she would have seen what her crimes were. "'Captain Osborne, of course, could not marry a bankrupt's daughter,' the Mrs. Dobbin said. "'It was quite enough to have been swindled by the father. "'As for Amelia, her folly had really passed all—' "'All what?' Captain Dobbin roared out. "'Haven't they been engaged ever since they were children?' 
Dare any soul on earth breathe a word against the sweetest, the purest, the most angelical of young women? Law, William, don't be so heighty-tighty, Miss Jane said. We said nothing against Miss Sedley, except that her conduct was most imprudent, and her parents certainly deserved their misfortunes. Hadn't you better, now that Miss Sedley is free, propose for her yourself, William? Miss Anne asked sarcastically. It would be a most eligible connection. <laughs> I marry her, Dobbin said, blushing. If you are so ready, young ladies, to chop and change, do you suppose that she is? Laugh and sneer at that angel. She can't hear it, and she's miserable and unfortunate and deserves to be laughed at. Go on joking, Anne. You're the wit of the family. We're not in a barrack, William, Miss Anne remarked. Nobody in a barrack would say what you do cried out this roused British lion. I should like to hear a man breathe a word against her by Jupiter. But men don't talk in this way, Anne. It's only women who get together and hiss and shriek and cackle. Oh, there, don't cry. You only said you were a couple of geese. Well, you're not geese. You're swans. Anything you like. Only leave Miss Sedley alone. The sisters agreed that William was infatuated with the silly little thing, and they trembled lest her engagement being off with Osborne, she should take up with her other admirer, the captain. It is a mercy, Mamma, that the regiment is ordered abroad, the girl said. This danger, at any rate, is spared our brother. So it is that the French emperor comes in to perform a part in this domestic comedy of Vanity Fair. It was he that ruined Mr. John Sedley. It was he whose arrival in Paris called up all France in arms to defend him and all Europe to oust him. While the French nation was swearing fidelity, four mighty European armies were getting in motion, and one of these was a British army, of which our two heroes, Captain Dobbin and Captain Osborne, formed a part. The news of Napoleon's escape and landing was received by their gallant regiment with a fiery delight and enthusiasm. From the colonel to the smallest drummer, all were filled with hope and ambition and patriotic fury. Now was the time they had panted for, to show their comrades that they could fight as well as the Peninsular veterans. Stubble and Spoony looked to get promotion. Before the end of the campaign, Mrs. Major O'Dowd hoped to write herself Mrs. Colonel O'Dowd, C.B. Our two friends were just as excited as the rest. Mr. Dobbin very quietly, Mr. Osborne very loudly and energetically, each bent upon doing his duty and gaining his share of honor. At this thrilling time, private matters were little heeded. Hence George Osborne, busy with preparations for the coming march, was not so much affected by other incidents as he might otherwise have been. He was not, it must be confessed, very much cast down by old Mr. Sedley's catastrophe. He tried his new uniform, which became him very handsomely on the day when the first meeting of the creditors took place. His father told him of the wicked, shameful conduct of the bankrupt, reminded him that his connection with Amelia was broken off forever, 
and gave him a good sum of money to pay for the new clothes in which he looked so well. The bills of sale went up in the Sedley house, where he had passed so many happy hours. He could see them as he walked away from home that evening, shining white in the moon. He was very melancholy that night in the coffee-room, and drank a good deal, as his comrades remarked. Dobbin came in presently, cautioned him about the drink, and began to make clumsy inquiries. Osborne declined answering, saying that he was devilish disturbed and unhappy. Three days afterwards, Dobbin found Osborne in his room at the barracks, his head on the table, a number of papers about, and the young captain greatly despondent. She sent me back some trinkets I gave her. Look here. There was a little packet with a letter. It's all over, said he with a groan. You may read it if you like. The letter said, "'My papa has ordered me to return to you these presents, "'which you gave me in happier days, "'and I am to write to you for the last time. "'I know you feel, as I do, the blow which has come upon us. "'I absolve you from an engagement "'which is impossible in our present misery. "'I am sure you had no share in the cruel suspicions of Mr. Osborne, "'which are the hardest of our griefs to bear. "'Farewell.' I pray God to strengthen me to bear this and other calamities, and to bless you always. A. I shall often play upon the piano, your piano. It was so like you to send it. Dobbin was very soft-hearted. The sight of women and children in pain always used to melt him. The idea of Amelia, broken heart and lonely, tore that good-natured soul with anguish. He swore that Amelia was an angel, and Osborne agreed with all his heart. Osborne, too, had been thinking of Amelia from her childhood, so sweet, so innocent, so charmingly simple and artlessly fond. What a pang it was to lose all that, to have had it and not prized it. He blushed with remorse, as the memory of his selfishness and indifference contrasted with her perfect purity. For a while, glory, war, everything was forgotten, and the pair of friends talked about her only. "'Where are they?' Osborne asked, in truth ashamed that he had taken no steps to follow her. "'There's no address to the note.' Dobbin knew." He had not merely sent the piano, but had written a note to Mrs. Sedley, and had seen her, and Amelia too, yesterday. He had found Mrs. Sedley only too willing to receive him, and greatly agitated by the arrival of the piano, which, she guessed, must have come from George. Captain Dobbin did not correct her error, but listened to all her misfortunes with great sympathy. Then he asked to see Amelia, who was in her room, and whom her mother led, trembling, downstairs. Her appearance was so ghastly, and her look of despair so pathetic, that William Dobbin was frightened. He read the most fateful forebodings in that pale, fixed face. After sitting in his company a minute, she put the packet of trinkets into his hand and said— "'Take this to Captain Osborne, if you please, and—and and I hope he's quite well.' 
It was very kind of you to come and see us. We like our new house very much. And I, and I think I'll go upstairs, Mamma, for I'm not very strong. And with a curtsy and a smile, the poor child left. Inexpressible grief, pity, and terror pursued Dobbin when he came away. Osborne made anxious inquiries about her. How was she? What did she say? His comrade took his hand and looked him in the face. George, she's dying, William Dobbin said, and could speak no more. There was a buxom Irish servant girl who performed all the duties of the little house where the Sedley family had found refuge, and this girl had often tried to give Amelia aid or consolation. Emmy was much too sad to be aware of her attempts. Four hours after the talk between Dobbin and Osborne, this servant-maid came smiling into Amelia's room, where she sat brooding over her letters, her little treasures. Miss Emmy, I'm coming, Emmy said, not looking around. There's a message, the maid went on. There's something, somebody, sure, here's a new letter for you. Oh, don't be reading those old ones any more. And she gave her a letter, which Emmy took and read. I must see you, the letter said. Dearest Emmy, dearest love, dearest wife, come to me. George and her mother were outside, waiting for her. Chapter 19 Miss Crawley at Nurse we have mentioned how kind and attentive Mrs. Butte Crawley was to Firkin, Miss Crawley's confidential servant. She was a gracious friend to Miss Briggs, the companion also, and had gained her goodwill with those promises which cost so little in the making and are yet so agreeable to the recipient. Indeed, every good economist must know how cheap yet amiable these attentions are, and what a flavor they give to the most homely dish in life. Mrs. Butte had told Briggs and Firkin so often of her affection for them, and of what she would do for them if she had Miss Crawley's fortune, that the two ladies had the deepest regard for her, and felt as grateful as if Mrs. Butte had loaded them with expensive favors. Rawdon Crawley, on the other hand, like the selfish heavy dragoon he was, never took the least trouble to conciliate his aunt's companions. As his aunt made a butt of Briggs, the captain followed her example, and leveled his jokes at her. Whereas Mrs. Butte consulted her in matters of taste, admired her poetry, and showed her appreciation of Briggs in a thousand ways, and if she made Firkin a tuppenny present, accompanied it with so many compliments that the tuppence was changed to gold in the maid's grateful heart. Praise everybody, I say. Never be squeamish. "'but speak out your compliment both to a man's face and behind his back "'when you know he may get to hear of it. "'Never lose a chance of saying a kind word. "'Plant your compliments like acorns. "'An acorn costs nothing, but it may sprout into a prodigious bit of timber.' During Rawdon Crawley's prosperity, he was only obeyed sulkily. When his disgrace came, nobody pitied him. But the garrison at Miss Crawley's house were charmed to act under such a leader as Mrs. Butte, expecting all sorts of promotion from her promises and kind words. 
Mrs. Bute Crawley never allowed herself to suppose that Rawdon would be beaten by one defeat. She knew Rebecca to be too clever and spirited a woman to submit without a struggle, and felt that she must prepare for that combat and be incessantly watchful. In the first place, would Miss Crawley herself hold out? Had she not a secret longing to welcome back Rawdon and Rebecca? The old lady liked them. They amused her. Mrs. Bute could not disguise from herself the fact that none of her own family could contribute much to Miss Crawley's pleasures. My girl singing after that odious governess's is unbearable, she admitted to herself. Jim's college manners and poor dear Bute's talk about his dogs and horses always annoyed her. If I took her to the rectory... She would grow angry with us all and fly and might fall into the clutches of that horrid Rawdon and that little viper of a sharp. Meanwhile, she is exceedingly ill and cannot move for weeks, during which we must protect her from those unprincipled people. Miss Crawley was always ready to send for her doctor, and I dare say she was very unwell after the sudden family event. At least Mrs. Bute thought it was her duty to inform the physician and the apothecary and the household that Miss Crawley was in a most critical state. She had the street laid knee-deep with straw to muffle sounds. She insisted that the doctor should call twice a day, and deluged her patient with medicinal draughts every two hours. The poor old lady could not look up from her bed without seeing Mrs. Bute's beady eyes eagerly fixed on her. They seemed to shine in the dark as she moved about the room on velvet paws like a cat. There Miss Crawley lay for many days, Mrs. Bute reading books of devotion to her, for long nights during which she had to hear the watchman sing. When she was in health and good spirits, this old inhabitant of Vanity Fair had free notions about religion and morals. But when illness overtook her, it brought the most dreadful terrors of death— for the bustle and triumph and laughter which Vanity Fair exhibits in public do not always pursue the performer into private life. Are there not moments when one grows sick of grinning and tumbling and the jingling of cap and bells? This, dear friends, is my amiable object, to walk with you through the fair, so that we should all come home after the noise and gaiety and be perfectly miserable in private. If that poor man of mine had a head on his shoulders, Mrs. Bute Crawley thought, how useful he might be. He might make this old lady repent of her shocking ways. He might urge her to do her duty and cast off her odious nephew and do justice to my dear children who deserve every assistance which their relatives can give them. Mrs. Bute Crawley tried to instill in her sister-in-law a proper abhorrence for all Rawdon Crawley's many sins, producing a list of them long enough for a whole regiment of young officers. She showed a perfect knowledge of Rawdon's history. She had all the details of that ugly quarrel with Captain Markle when Rawdon shot him. She knew how young Lord Dovedale, who had never touched a card in his life, was perverted by Rawdon at the cocoa tree, made helplessly tipsy, and fleeced of four thousand pounds. 
she described the agonies of the families whom he had ruined, the sons whom he had plunged into poverty, the daughters whom he had lured into perdition. She knew the astounding falsehoods by which he had imposed upon his generous aunt, and the ridicule with which he had repaid her. She told these stories to Miss Crawley, feeling it to be her Christian duty. She had not the smallest remorse for her victim. If a man's character is to be abused, there's nobody like a relation to do the business, and one is bound to own that the mere truth about the unfortunate Rorden was enough to condemn him without any invention of scandal. Rebecca, too, came in for the fullest share of Mrs. Butte's kind inquiries. Mrs. Butte visited her old friend, Miss Pinkerton, at Chiswick Mall, from whom she got various strange facts about Rebecca's early history. Miss Jemima was made to fetch the drawing-master's receipts and begging letters. There were juvenile letters from Rebecca, too, imploring aid for her father or declaring her gratitude. Perhaps, in Vanity Fair, there are no better satires than letters. Vows, promises, gratitude. How queerly they read after a while. There ought to be a law in Vanity Fair ordering the destruction of every written document after a certain interval, and indelible ink should be abolished. The best ink for Vanity Fair use would be one that faded utterly in a couple of days, and left the paper blank. From Miss Pinkerton's, the indefatigable Mrs. Butte followed the track of Sharp and his daughter back to their former lodgings in Greek Street. Mrs. Stokes, the landlady, told all she knew about Mr. Sharp, how dissolute and poor he was, how he was always hunted by bailiffs, how, to the landlady's horror, he did not marry his wife till a short time before her death. And what a queer little wild vixen his daughter was! How she kept them all laughing with her mimicry, and used to fetch the gin from the public house. So, in Mrs. Butte's tale, Mrs. Rawdon Crawley was the daughter of an opera girl. She had danced herself. She had been a model to the painters. She drank gin with her father, etc., etc. She was a lost woman who was married to a lost man, and the moral was that the pair were beyond redemption. These were the provisions and ammunition with which Mrs. Butte fortified the Park Lane house against the siege which she knew that Rawdon and his wife would lay to Miss Crawley. But she was too eager. She managed rather too well. She made Miss Crawley more ill than was necessary, and was so harassing and severe that the old lady might have been inclined to escape by dying. Women, who order everything for everybody, don't always speculate about the consequences of their own overstrained authority. Thus, Mrs. Butte, with the best intentions, no doubt, carried her conviction of the old lady's illness so far that she almost managed her into her coffin. She pointed out her sacrifices one day to the apothecary, Mr. Clump. I am sure, my dear Mr. Clump, she said, no efforts of mine have been lacking to restore our dear invalid. I never shrink. I never refuse to sacrifice myself. Your devotion is admirable, Mr. Clump said, 
with a low bow. But I give up sleep, health, every comfort to my sense of duty. When my poor James had the smallpox, did I allow any hireling to nurse him? No. You did what became an excellent mother, my dear madam, but as the wife of an English clergyman, I humbly trust that my principles are good, Mrs. Bute said with happy conviction, and as long as nature supports me, never will I desert my duty. Oh, Mr. Clump, I fear that the invalid needs spiritual as well as medical consolation. What I was going to observe, my dear madam, the resolute Clump interposed, was that I think you alarm yourself needlessly about our kind friend and sacrifice your own health too much. I would lay down my life for my duty. Yes, madam, but we don't want you to be a martyr, Clump said gallantly. Dr. Squills and I both considered Miss Crawley to be low-spirited and nervous. Family events have agitated her. Her nephew will go to perdition, Mrs. Crawley cried. And you arrive like a guardian angel, my dear madam, to soothe her. But Dr. Squills and I think that confinement to her bed is not necessary. She is depressed, but she should have change, fresh air, gaiety, Mr. Clump said, grinning. Persuade her to rise, dear madam. Insist upon her taking little drives. That will restore the roses to your cheeks, too. Well, the sight of her horrid nephew in the park would cause her such a shock that we should have to bring her back to bed again. She must not go out, Mr. Clump. As for my health, I sacrifice it cheerfully at the altar of my duty. Upon my word, madam, Mr. Clump now said bluntly, I won't answer for her life if she remains locked up in that dark room. She is so nervous that we may lose her any day. And if you wish Captain Crawley to be her heir, I warn you frankly, madam, that you are doing your very best to aid him. Gracious mercy! Is her life in danger? Why did you not inform me sooner?' The night before this, Mr. Clump and Dr. Squills had had a consultation about Miss Crawley and her case. "'What a harpy that woman from Hampshire is, Clump,' Squills remarked, "'that has seized upon old Tilly Crawley. "'What a fool Rodden Crawley has been to go and marry a governess. "'There was something about the girl, too. "'Green eyes, fair skin, pretty figure.' The old girl will fling him over. But that Hampshire woman will kill her in two months, Clump, if she stays there. Old woman. Nervous palpitations. Apoplexy. Off she goes. Get her up, Clump. Get her out. And thus it was that the worthy apothecary spoke so candidly to Mrs. Bute Crawley. When nobody was near, Mrs. Bute had made more than one attack upon Miss Crawley to induce her to alter her will. But Miss Crawley's terror of death increased greatly when such dismal suggestions were made to her, and Mrs. Bute saw that she must get her patient into cheerful spirits before she could succeed. Where to take her was the next puzzle, if she was not to meet Rawdon Crawley. "'We must visit our beautiful suburbs of London,' Mrs. Bute thought. "'I hear they are the most picturesque in the world.' 
Getting her victim into her carriage, she drove her to the rustic spots of Hampstead and Dulwich, beguiling the journeys with conversations about Rawdon and his wife, and telling every story to the old lady which could add to her indignation. Perhaps Mrs. Bute pulled the string unnecessarily tight, for the invalid had a hatred and secret terror of her victimizer, and panted to escape from her. After a brief time, she rebelled. She would go to the park. Mrs. Bute knew they would meet the abominable Rawdon there, and she was right. One day in the park, Rawdon's carriage came in sight. Rebecca was seated by him. In the enemy's carriage, Miss Crawley occupied her usual place, with Mrs. Bute on her left and Miss Briggs on the back seat. It was a nervous moment and Rebecca's heart beat quick when she recognized them. As the two vehicles crossed each other, she clasped her hands and looked towards the spinster with a face of agonized attachment and devotion. Rawdon trembled, and his face grew purple behind his dyed mustachios. In the other carriage, old Briggs cast her great eyes nervously towards her old friend's. Miss Crawley's bonnet was resolutely turned towards the serpentine. Mrs. Butte was busy playing with the poodle, and the carriages moved on. Try once more, Rawdon, Rebecca urged. Could not you lock your wheels into theirs, dearest? Rawdon had not the heart for that maneuver. When the carriages met again, he stood up and raised his hand, ready to doff his hat. But this time, Miss Crawley did not turn away. She and Mrs. Butte looked him full in the face and cut their nephew pitilessly. He sank back in his seat with an oath and dashed desperately homewards. It was a decided triumph for Mrs. Butte, but she felt the danger of many such meetings and decided that for the sake of her dear friend's health they should leave town for a while, and she recommended Brighton very strongly. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.